This past Wednesday night, we were in the book of Acts. Uh, we started two weeks ago a study of the book of Acts, and so obviously this last Wednesday night, we were in the second chapter. If you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that it begins with the disciples there uh, with Christ, of course, and uh, another resurrection appearance by him. Then he uh, tells them to wait, uh, waiting on something specific, and then he ascends into heaven, and they're looking up into the skies, and the angels come and say, don't bother looking. It's going to come back someday like this, but for now he's gone. And then we move into chapter 2, and what they were waiting for has finally arrived. That is, they had waited for the Holy Spirit, and in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down in a powerful and supernatural way, and they begin to speak in other languages. The text says tongues, but it's clear he's talking about other known languages. So the people that are there who have come from all over the place for the festival are hearing the Word of God in their own language. And so they are amazed at this, and Peter has to follow that up with a sermon to tell them what has transpired as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And then there is about 3,000 people who are converted as a result of all this. And then we come to the verse that I want to begin with today. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you are probably familiar with it. We've heard it before. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers. And so it's this ideal community and these four elements that they are now committed to. That is the apostles' teaching. They were learning from the things the apostles were teaching. They were learning doctrine or truth. They were committed to fellowshipping with one another. That is spending time with each other around this common bond of their relationship with Christ. They were breaking bread, which either means they were partaking of the Lord's Supper or eating meals together or some combination of both. And they were praying. And the reason I bring that up is because those four elements and the picture we get there leads to this idea that the early church was this just ideal community that we sure wish we knew. And so you hear people say today, you know what we need? We just need to get back to the early church. Why, if we could be like the early church, we wouldn't have all of these problems because frankly, when we read Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it does not sound like our church experience because our church experience includes getting mad at each other. Our church experience includes people leaving the body and going somewhere else or not going anywhere else at all because they get upset with somebody or something. There's a problem with the preacher or there's a problem with somebody else. There's always some sort of problem in the local church. And we don't seem to see that in Acts chapter 2. But what we are going to see is it doesn't take very long to go from Acts chapter 2 to significant problems in the church. In fact, the study we are going to begin today in the book of 1 John, it's only about 30 or 40 years later, maybe 50, but it's not all that far removed from Acts chapter 2. And by the time we come to 1 John, there is a church split. Fortunately, I've never been a part of a church split, but I bet some of you have. I bet some of you have been in a church where for some reason, there was some problem, some issue that festered for a very long time, and eventually it led to a parting of ways. A group of people actually left the church and went to some other church, or they formed another church. 
You know, you were at Harmony Baptist and it didn't work out, so they go down the road and they start Unity Baptist. That's sort of the things we usually do. In fact, did you hear about that guy that was on a desert island all by himself? I don't know what got him there, but for some reason he was on this deserted island all by himself and for several years, and finally he's rescued. But when the rescuers come to, to get him, they find that there are three structures on this island, and they don't understand this, and so they say, what are these three buildings? The guy says, well, that first one over there, that's my house, that's where I live. The middle one, that, that's my church, that's where I worship. They say, all right, what's the third one? Well, that's where I used to worship. But, you know, we had some problems down there, and I had to start over. doesn't matter how many people you have, there are going to be problems in the church. That's just the nature of things. And that is not a new reality. That is an old truth. Because when we come to the book of 1 John, there is a serious issue taking place here that has divided the congregation. And again, we're, no, we're not immune to this. No one is. In fact, you're probably reading about the United Methodist Church, a denomination that is on the verge of splitting. In fact, when they convene in May for their annual convention, they are going to vote on whether or not to split apart as a denomination and form a new denomination. We're not immune to that. Our Southern Baptist Convention did this many years ago. In 1991, our Southern Baptist Convention split. And the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship was formed in 1991 over doctrinal and theological issues. We went our separate ways. Some churches left and formed the CBF. Others like us stayed in the SBC. And there are actually some churches now that are duly aligned. That is, they give money and are associated with both of these denominations. Maybe you haven't been in a church split. But you are familiar with the issues and you've seen people leave. Maybe not, a, maybe not a half and half kind of thing, but you've been involved in issues where a group of people left or maybe just some individuals or some families. They've gotten upset about something and so they've left. And it's very easy to do in our day when there are a lot of churches and therefore it's very easy to go from one to another. And anytime someone leaves the church, they, they tend to say to us, now I want you to understand it's not personal. Well, I want you to understand it's always personal because it's a family. When someone leaves the family of God because they're upset and they go somewhere else, it is always personal because it's a rift in the family of God that is not supposed to happen. Instead, we're supposed to love one another and work together with one another. Now, all of that leads us to the book of 1 John. And the basis for John writing this book, that is the reason he is writing this, is because there has been a church split. There have been those who have left the body to form another congregation. And in this case, it's on the basis of theology. Now, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes the doctrinal issues become so great and so significant and so fundamental to what we believe that a split is indeed the best thing to happen. But unfortunately, in many cases today, church splits are over much lesser things. But what we find in 1 John is that there is some new teaching. And this new teaching is decidedly different from what the apostles had been teaching. And because some folks have left the church to form another congregation, that has left the people at the current church, or churches, confused. 
They are beginning to doubt. Maybe we're the ones wrong. If the best and brightest and in all likelihood the richest have left the body and formed another church, maybe we're the ones that are wrong. Those who are left behind are thinking. And so John comes along to proclaim truth. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Now I realize in titling it that, we don't like either one of those words. We don't like the word proclaim. No one wants to be proclaimed to in these days because that has a ring of authority about it. We want to talk about things. We can discuss as we sit around in a circle, but nobody wants proclamation anymore. And truth? Well, as you well know, we live in a society that says in many cases there is no such thing as truth. And yet John comes along and says, I'm proclaiming truth to you. And that's exactly what you need. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. There's the second time we see that word. We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now before we dive into any book, before we hear what John is proclaiming, if you've been with us long enough, you know we have to endure a little background information. I use the word endure because some of you tolerate this. Some of you perhaps check out when I talk about this. A few of you like it. But the fact of the matter is all of us need it. The more we know about the background information to a letter of the New Testament, the more that book opens up to us so that we can understand what's going on. And the better we understand what's going on then, the more we can apply it to our own situation. And so we must begin this morning with, the, with setting the scene for this proclamation rather than getting right to the proclamation itself. To begin that, we want to look at the composer of this letter, that is, who is the author? You say, well, that's an easy one. The author is John. His name is right there. It's the title of the book. Well, the truth is, this is an anonymous letter. The letter itself does not say anything about who the author is. It's one of the few letters in the New Testament that is like that. Hebrews is another example. The author here never makes any personal designation of any kind. Now, in the second and third epistles of John, there is a mention that the elder is writing this, but that is not true in this case. So because the elder writes second and third John, there are some who say there were two Johns. There was one John who wrote the gospel, and there was another John who is called later the elder who writes the epistles of John. However, this argument is not really very convincing. You'll notice that this letter begins in a very similar way to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John begins in one of the, the best ways. I think it's one of the best prologues to any book in all of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
So John, in his gospel, goes all the way back to eternity past and talks about the eternality, the deity of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus Christ who has become incarnate. And we see very much the same thing here, not in that great detail, but you see that our verse begins, that which was from the beginning. So here we come to the conclusion that the author, the composer of this letter is none other than the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the same man who wrote the fourth gospel. And By the way, it's the same man who we looked at last week. You remember last week we were in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, we saw the calling of the first disciples, two pairs of brother, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. So this is that same John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who is now in his latter years, and he is composing this epistle. Well, you say, if this is written by John, why does he keep using the pronoun we? Did you catch that in those verses? Which we have seen, which we have looked upon, and on and on. Why does John use the plural if John singular is the author? Well, there are multiple answers to this that are possible. One is that he has other people who are with him. That is, he has co-authors, co-laborers who are with him while he is writing this, and therefore he is including them in the writing. But we have no other evidence that that is the case, so that's not likely. Secondly, the possibility is that he could be using the, the we in a colloquial sense. We do this sometimes. We still say things like, we won the game. Well, we didn't win the game. We didn't play in the game. It's more accurate to say, I watched my team win the game, but we tend to say we won the game. We include ourselves even though we weren't really included. So it's possible that John is simply doing that. He is simply including other people even though technically they are not part of this writing. But I think he's using the word we to bring in his departed associate apostles. Again, John is the last apostle alive. All of the other disciples are gone, and yet he is writing on their behalf. He is bringing them in to this letter to say, I'm not the only one who saw. I'm not the only one who heard. I'm not the only one who touched. We saw and heard and felt all of this, we being me and my associates. And so he's bringing to bear their testimony because they cannot do it for themselves. All right, so if John is the author, who is the recipient? Who is he writing to? And again, a lot of New Testament letters, I want to say most New Testament letters, identify that for us. Paul, especially when he writes a letter, says, I, Paul, am writing to the church in wherever. He is very clear about the church he is writing to. But John does not do this here. John and Hebrews neither give us a recipient. And so most believe that John is writing to a church or in, more, in all likelihood a group of churches. That is, this would be a circular letter. Circular meaning it goes to one church, they then read it, and then they pass it along to another church in the same area. So John is writing to a church or in all likelihood a group of churches who are in the province of Asia Minor and they are struggling with this issue of false teachers who have departed the church. He is, according to tradition, spends late, his later years in the city of Ephesus, and therefore he is writing from there. In fact, we've already read from the book of Ephesians this morning. 
Which leads to our third element in setting the stage for proclamation. What is the context? What is going on that leads him to write this letter that John's writing to this group of churches? Again, he's writing from the city of Ephesus. We cannot give an exact date of the writing, but most believe it is late first century. That is between the years maybe 85 and 100 that John is writing this letter. Obviously, he's an older man at this time. Now, you will recall from your previous study of the book of Acts that Paul goes on missionary journeys in this area, and those missionary journeys occur in the mid-50s, that is 52 to 55. So in those years, Paul is in this area, and he is preaching, and he is establishing churches. He is what we call today planting churches in the mid-50s. And now sometime after 85, so 30-plus years later, These churches have had opportunity to grow, they've had opportunity to expand, and yes, they've had opportunity to experience problems. And the problem is there are some false teachers who have spread in a sufficient manner to justify the writing of this letter. And so by the time John writes this, a group has deserted the church, they have left the true gospel, which is more important than the fact that they left the church, but they're not content with just starting another church down the road. They are actually sending missionaries, if we want to call them that, they are sending missionaries back to the churches they have left, trying to convince the people who have stayed that they are wrong in staying and that they too need to leave. So it's not just that some people departed the church They are still sending people back to make waves in the church that they have departed, trying to draw more and more people away from that church and, again, more importantly, the true gospel, which has has left those people who remain confused and even doubting. You know, maybe we're wrong. If so many people have left, and those were smart people, influential people, If they have left, maybe we're the ones that are wrong, and maybe we need to listen to these teachers that they are sending and perhaps follow them. That's the context. Now, the final element in any setting of the stage is the purpose, which we've talked around, but now we want to talk specifically. So why would John write this? Well, again, some authors are very clear about this. Others are not. John is an author who is very clear about why he writes. The first purpose we see there in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then if you got your Bibles open, drop down to chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now drop down to chapter 2 and verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That is those who have left. And then the fourth one, and the most important one, is chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So four times John uses that phrase, this is the reason why I am writing. So if I might summarize those four things, I would say, first of all, he is writing to combat the teaching of those who have left the church. They are teaching a new theology. And what we need to understand, especially in our day, is just because something is new does not mean it is true. Or just because something is new does not mean it is better than what we had in the past. The younger generations today 
instinctively think that new is always better, and that is simply not the case. Their new theology was rooted in theological or Christological error. In other words, it struck at the very heart of who Jesus was and their relationship to him. In the second century, there was a common error known as Gnosticism. Now, there is always some debate in, with theologians about whether that's evident in the first century and thus in the letters of the New Testament or whether it comes later. But in all likelihood, there's at least some beginnings of Gnosticism in this late first century. Gnosticism comes from, the, the name comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so there were some spiritually mature people who knew more than others. There were people who said, oh, we know more than the average Christian knows, and you can't really be a follower of Christ unless you know the secrets like we know the secrets. And that's why it was called Gnosticism, because the knowledge they had supposedly had led them to a greater relationship with God. There was also something known as Doceticism, which comes from the Greek word to seem. And their major idea was that matter was inherently evil. And if matter is inherently evil, then it was impossible for Jesus to take on the form of a man. So doceticism taught that Jesus did not really come in the flesh. It just seemed like he did. That's why the name doceticism from to seem. And so John is combating at least the early forms of these kinds of, of heresies all of which come back to the combination of Jesus being fully God and fully man, something the church has always struggled with. And so there's always been heresies that go to one side or the other, that overemphasize the divinity at the expense of his humanity or vice versa. In fact, there was even a belief that, that Jesus was not divine when he first came, the Spirit at his baptism came upon him, and that was the divinity. And then that left him before the crucifixion, because you can't fathom the divine suffering like Jesus did. And so they had this idea that the divine only came on Jesus at the baptism and left before the crucifixion, and in all actuality, that could actually happen to them as well. And so there was this new theology that certainly wasn't any better. It was a lot worse than the old theology, but this new theology led to a new morality. And that is often the case, isn't it? Our theology drives our morality, and when we have new theology, it oftentimes undermines our old morality. That's why John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because these teachers with the new theology were then claiming that they were, in essence, sinless. And you say, how can that be? Well, because they were simply redefining sin or justifying or rationalizing their own actions. They were so intellectually superior to others that now they were spiritually mature and they were not sinning. Now, if they were not sinning, we have to take this a step further. If they were not sinning, then who needs the cross, right? I mean, who needs the, the sacrifice of Christ, a vicarious sacrifice as a substitution for those who are sinning? If I have no sin, then I don't need Christ as my substitute, and his sacrifice was not for me. And I hope you can see how this new theology and this new morality was cutting at the very heart of what we believe. And that is the incarnation, that was not necessary. The crucifixion, that was not necessary. 
And so they were undermining all of these truths of the genuine gospel in their new theology and their new morality, and they were emphasizing their own experience in its place. Finally, these false teachers were espousing a new spirituality. They were puffed up with pride. And if you're puffed up, puffed up with pride, there was no need to love your brethren. And that's why John talks about this over and over again. To love one another is a part of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, this area of the world in this late first century had strayed so far from the original gospel that Paul, in writing to Timothy in the second letter to Timothy, says this, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Now, that probably doesn't mean everyone individually. You know how we overuse that as well. Everyone was there or no one was there. And so to say that everyone deserted Paul doesn't mean individually every single believer has deserted Paul, but it certainly means the majority have left him. And that is what John is dealing with here as well, a Christianity that is no Christianity at all because it's moved away from the very things the apostle taught. And that is why John is about to proclaim the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that is the same thing we need to do in our day and age where churches and believers are increasingly moving away from the true gospel along the same lines that we see here. In fact, we're going to see in the book of 1 John that this little letter is so relevant to what we're seeing today that John could have written it last week. It is so contemporary to the problems that we continue to see in our own churches that it could have been in last week's Sunday paper. But the second part of this main purpose is to reassure those who are remaining in the church of their salvation. You see, if you've ever been through a church split, you know it can leave bitterness and hard feelings for years. In fact, I am confident there are countless people in this area of Knoxville and all areas of Knoxville who are sitting home this morning choosing not to go to church because primarily they've been involved in a split in the past and it has so warped them to the church that they don't go to church any longer. That's how long and how severe these things can be. But in this case, the theological issue that was involved have left the people in the church confused. Again, they are wondering if they are right or if they are wrong. There are probably some who have not left, and yet they are considering whether they need to join those who have left. Now, many people look at 1 John as a test of salvation. That is, there are key points throughout this letter that basically say, if you're a genuine believer, here's what your life ought to look like. If you're a genuine believer, here's what your beliefs ought to look like. And all of that is true. John is going to share that with us. But at its heart, John's first epistle is a letter of assurance. He is not writing to those who have left. He is writing to those who have remained, trying to assure them that in anchoring their beliefs to what the apostles taught and in anchoring their lives to what they believe, they are, in fact, genuine believers. So this is a letter of assurance. Now, all of that is setting the stage for the proclamation. We need to move on now to the actual proclamation and see the historical basis of this proclamation. Again, John is dealing with a group of false teachers whose belief about Jesus is heretical. 
they are proclaiming in one way or another that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. The incarnation, let's reinterpret that. That celebration that we have at Christmas maybe is not all it's cracked up to be. Since matter is evil, Jesus could not have taken the form of a man, and therefore his life, death, and resurrection really have no meaning. So John sets out to proclaim the historical Jesus. You notice that word proclaim is found twice in both verses 2 and 3. The main verb is found there in verse 3. But because it's difficult for us to wait that long in English, it's repeated for us in verse 2. But clearly proclaiming the historical Jesus is at the heart of John's letter. And believe it or not, we still face the same battle today. We still face the same thing. People actually say things like, well, the historical Jesus doesn't really matter. What matters is the Jesus you know. Or what matters is the Jesus you believe. Or what matters is the Jesus you have experienced. And so when we talk about the Jesus of the Bible, people say, well, I, no, the Jesus I know, and then off they go. What we need to be reminded of, and what John is reminding us of, is there are not multiple Jesus. There is not the Jesus you have experienced and the Jesus I know. There is not the, the Jesus someone out there is close to and the Jesus in here that we know. There is one Jesus. And it is the historical Jesus who lived and died and rose again, whose life, death, and resurrection is proclaimed to us in the Word of God. That is the only Jesus there is. And that is the Jesus that John proclaims. And so he begins by telling us there is the original Jesus, that which was from the beginning. Now again, there is some debate as to which beginning he's talking about. Is he talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly life? Is he talking about the beginning of the Gospels as they are recorded for us, the New Testament era? Or is he going all the way back to the eternality of Jesus Christ? I tend to go with the latter, again, because of the closeness that we find here with John's gospel. John's gospel is clearly going back to Jesus being an eternal being and with the Father, and I think he's doing the same thing here. This is not some new and improved Jesus. Sometimes we get the mistaken idea that just because something is new, it is inherently better. But some of you know by experience that just because it's new doesn't mean it is replacing or is better than what was in the past. And of course, a historical example is New Coke. Those of you who have been around long enough for that, you remember that? The Coca-Cola company decided that their old Coke wasn't good enough anymore. And so they came out with what they literally called New Coke. And it didn't last very long. It was one of the great failures in marketing history. Because we consumers said there is nothing wrong with the old Coke. We don't need a new version. Get rid of it. And they finally listened to us and they got rid of it. And what John is saying is we do not need a new version of Jesus. The original one will do just fine. Thank you very much. He cannot be improved upon. And this is the Jesus that we must know. The second thing he says about this historical Jesus is that he is the audible Jesus. That is, John literally heard the message of Jesus from his own lips. And the false teachers could not make this claim. Books and letters are great, but there is something about hearing someone in person. I mean, I can read books and learn from them, and I do, 
But there is something about hearing someone speak in person or getting some, some interaction with someone in person that makes a difference. I'm reading a book now called Digital Minimalism. It's, it's about how we need to minimize the impact technology has had upon our life. It's not saying get rid of technology altogether because it understands that there are tremendous benefits to the technology we have, but, but it is saying there's some harm to this technology as well and we need to minimize its impact in our lives. And the reason I bring that up is because it makes a distinction between con- conversation and connection. You see, we are connected with a lot of people. We have a lot of people who we are connected with through social media. And so we get the likes and we get whatever else they call them, and and therefore we are connected to a lot of people. But we don't have real conversations with as many people. And the fact is, in a conversation, you don't just get their words. You get their body language, you get their emotions, you get their facial expressions. You learn a whole lot more about what someone is saying when you have a real conversation with them, which is why sometimes we misinterpret someone's text to us. You've done that, right? Someone will text you something, and you go, well, they're mad. I don't know why they're mad at me, but clearly they are. I mean, read this, they're clearly mad. And then you fire off something else, and somehow this conversation goes awry significantly, and the fact of the matter is they were never mad to begin with. You just didn't know that because you couldn't hear their tone and all those other things, and you misread it. And so what John is telling us here is that he heard Jesus in person. He heard the authority. We talked about that last week. In fact, maybe it's time for a commercial break. You know, I know your, I know your attention spans aren't as good as they used to be because of TV, so let's take a timeout. Commercial. Last week... If you were here, you got one of these cards. If you weren't here, or you've lost your card, or you've forgotten where you put it, or frankly, it never made it out of the sanctuary, whatever the reason, these cards are still out in the foyer. Last week, we talked about who's your one. And we said what we want to do is commit, all of us commit to trying to reach one person this year who we believe is not a believer, and we want to pray for them and share the gospel with them. And so this card is out there. You can pick it up on your way out. Out there also are some prayer guides that go along with this to coincide with the 30 days of Scripture that go along with this. And so it doesn't matter when you start. You're not behind because you, didn't, you weren't here last week or you forgot. It doesn't matter when you begin. Just get one of those cards. Find someone that you need to share the gospel with, and that is your one. All right, so back to the sermon. Commercial break is over. The reason I brought all that up is because last week we did talk about the authority of Jesus. We talked about how... Just in his tone, there was a different authority. How at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says there that he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, An experience that I didn't bring up last Sunday was one time the, the temple police were sent to arrest Jesus. The religious rulers sent the temple police to arrest Jesus and bring them back to them. They go and listen to Jesus, and yet they don't arrest him. They don't bring him back. They come back to the religious rulers, and those religious rulers say, well, where's Jesus? And what is their response? Never has a man spoke like this man speaks. They didn't arrest him because there was something different about the way he spoke, and that's exactly what John is saying here. He's saying, guys, I've heard the historical Jesus with my own ears, and there is just something different about him than anybody else I have ever heard. But then he says, thirdly, 
This is a visual Jesus. The historical Jesus I have seen with my own eyes. And the fact that he says with my own eyes tells us that he is speaking literally here. John did not see a dream of Jesus. John did not have a vision. Rather, he walked along beside him for three years. He saw the compassion as he ministered. He saw the tears that occasionally rolled down the cheeks of Jesus at the sight of those who refused to believe. He literally saw Jesus hanging on the cross. And in that episode, heard Jesus dialogue to him personally. John, behold my mother, take care of her. John heard Jesus. John saw Jesus. He witnessed these things with his own eyes. And this goes beyond mere seeing. Remember, it was Peter and John who were the first disciples. There were, there were women who came first, but these are the first disciples to come to the tomb of Jesus. And Peter, because he outran John, gets into the tomb first, and he sees. But that's a different word for see. There's multiple words in the New Testament for see. When Peter gets in, it, he, he sees visually, but that's about it. Then John goes in afterwards, and the Bible tells us that John saw and believed. He is beginning to understand. That's a different word than the one used to Peter. He, he is beginning to process what has taken place here, though he certainly doesn't know it fully yet, but he's beginning to understand the significance of what he sees. And that's the word we have here. That John's visual sight of Jesus is not just, I saw something, but it is, I saw and I processed, I believed and maybe in using this word, he's going back to that historical moment. I mean, obviously he would have never forgotten that. He'd have never forgotten going into that tomb for the first time and seeing the grave clothes there and yet not seeing the body of Jesus. And so he is saying, I have, I have heard Jesus. I have seen Jesus. This is the original Jesus. And this is the physical Jesus. You see the piling up of the senses here. I mean, he repeats himself multiple times in just piling on the various senses. This is the Jesus I have touched. You see, the false teachers were saying, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. It just seemed like that. John's saying, no, it didn't just seem like that. I heard him. I saw him. I touched the Lord. And that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You remember the, uh, the, the disciple Thomas, the one we call Doubting Thomas? He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. And so the other disciples came to him and said, we've seen Jesus. And his response is, I am not going to believe unless I can touch. That will prove it to me. If I can physically touch the body of our Lord, then I will know that he has risen from the dead. And then a few days later, Jesus comes to them again. And this time, Thomas has not missed the appearance. And Jesus says, go ahead, touch. And what's Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. When he sees Jesus and when he is invited to touch Jesus... He bows down and says, you are Lord and God. I'm confident that you've been to various theaters where you see a 3D movie. You know, one of those movies where the things come off the screen. If you've been to Disney and they have these animated films, the, the little characters will come off the screen and they look like they're right in front of you. 
I mean, it is so real. You know in your mind that this is not real. You know you're sitting in a 3D movie theater, and yet these things have popped off the screen, and they're right in front of you. And you will see children, and maybe a few adults, but you will see children reaching out. They're trying to grab the object. Why are they doing that? Because instinctively they know that if they can touch it, it must be real. And their young minds are trying to process this looks so real, but I don't think it is. But I'm going to find out by by touching. And John says here, I have touched the Lord. Don't tell me Jesus isn't real. Don't tell me he didn't come in the flesh. Because I've heard him. I've seen him. I have touched him. Or as it says in in Luke's gospel, Jesus told the frightened disciples, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. John knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus physically came because he heard his voice. He saw him with his own eyes and he touched his physical body. And so the third thing I want you to notice is the ultimate goal of proclamation. Why is he saying all these things? Again, it's not until the middle part of verse 3 that we find this out. His first goal is mutual fellowship. That you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father through his Son. And so there is a dual emphasis here of fellowship. There is a vertical and a horizontal element to fellowship. Now, fellowship is a word that we abuse in the Christian church. Frankly, it's one of the most most misused words in the Christian church. Because to us, a fellowship means eating, right? That's why we call that building over there the fellowship hall. We so equate fellowship with eating that we have called the places where we eat in Baptist churches the fellowship hall. Or what you just did in Sunday school. That is, you came and you had a cup of coffee. Maybe if someone brought food, you had a donut or something else. And so you said, we have had Christian fellowship this morning because we had coffee and some sort of snack. Well, while that is fellowship, it is not Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is not talking about what happened in the game yesterday. Although if you've been in Sunday school, you know that's probably what happened. That we talked about the game yesterday or we talked about the Titans game this afternoon and we said, boy, that's Christian fellowship. That is not Christian fellowship. It's fellowship, but Christian fellowship is around our common identity and relationship in Christ. It is a coming together because we indeed do have something in common. And that which we have in common is not that we pull for the same sports team. That which we have in common is the fact that we are related to God through the Son. And therefore, we have mutual fellowship with each other. And so there is fellowship with one another. And then there is that vertical fellowship with the Father through His Son. And we cannot have Christian fellowship with one another unless we first have fellowship with God through his Son. And this phrase is virtually synonymous with salvation here. I know he doesn't use the words that we like to use. He doesn't say conversion. He doesn't say saved. But when he's talking about fellowship with God through his Son, he's talking about salvation. And when we have salvation, notice that these two things go together. When we have salvation, that is fellowship with God through his son, then we have fellowship with one another. You see, the false teachers were proclaiming that it was possible to have fellowship with God apart from Christ. 
And false teachers today continue to do the same thing. Oh, yeah, I know God. In fact, if we go back to that who's your one, you've got that name written down, and you begin to try to share with your one, in all likelihood, they are probably going to answer you, oh, oh, yeah, I know God. Don't worry about me. I know God. Well, do you know Jesus? Well, no, not really. Or, yeah, partially, but the Jesus I know, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier. But just because someone says they know God, does not mean they have real fellowship with God. That was the issue here. The teachers that had left and the people that had left were saying, don't worry about us, we have fellowship with God. And yet they didn't because they didn't know Christ. Or at least they didn't know the Christ of the historical gospels. And so we have to understand that when we begin sharing with our one, they might readily say, oh, I know God. But just because someone says they know God doesn't mean they do. That was a problem here, and it remains a problem today. So the purpose in writing here is that they have mutual fellowship with God the Father through the Son. That's salvation. And therefore, when we have salvation, we have fellowship with one another. And those two things always go together. When you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with other believers. And then he goes on to say, secondly, that he wants them to have complete joy. There was a textual issue here. We talked about this this past summer, not this specific one, but we talked about textual variance this past summer. There is one here. Is it, is it our joy or is it your joy? There are manuscripts that say both. In all likelihood, it's ours. We can understand your. That is, John is writing to say, I want your joy to be complete, and I know your joy can't be complete if you are heading in the wrong direction theologically and therefore morally. And so in order for your joy to be complete, you need to come back to the historical Jesus. And all that's true. But it's probably our joy here. So that John is not just talking about their joy, though he is, he's also talking about his joy. Because we'll see, or we won't see, but you will see if you read 2 and 3 John, in those books he says, I have no greater joy than to hear or know that my children walk in the truth. And so not only is their joy going to be complete if they do not follow these false teachers and remain connected in fellowship with God through Christ, but John is going to experience joy as well because then his children, that is his spiritual believers who have come to faith in the gospel through his ministry or others, are going to continue in that gospel and not be led astray. All right, so we've, we've started this morning, and I know we've looked at a lot of background, and we're going to flesh all of this out in the weeks to come, but we had to look at some of this to set the stage for proclamation. You can't just jump in to what is John saying without understanding the background behind it. So we've set the stage this morning for proclamation. And then we've made it very clear, and John does himself, that this is the historical Jesus we are proclaiming, the one we have seen, the one we have heard, the one we have touched. And we've seen the ultimate goal of that proclamation is fellowship with God and with one another, and therefore that our joy will be complete. So I want to ask you just two things. Number one, do you have fellowship with God? Again, I'm not asking for the standard answer. Yes, I know God. I, I prayed a prayer when I was 10. That's not what I'm asking you. You say, oh, I, I, I was baptized as a teenager. That is not what I'm asking you. 
I know those are the normal answers. Do you know God? Yes, I went to church when I was little. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking, do you have fellowship with God through his son? That's how John defines salvation in these first few verses. And if you don't, we'd love to talk to you further about what that means. Then secondly, do you have fellowship with us? That is the body of believers. And again, we, we, we talk about this often because there is such a disconnect in our day with people saying, I know God, I don't want anything to do with the church. There's just problems down there. No, if you know God, then you're going to want to know fellow believers. Those two things always go together in the New Testament. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. That is someone who is genuinely saved but wants nothing to do with the body. And there is no such thing as a church that is not made up of genuine believers. I know we have those who are not, but I'm saying genuine believers unite with the church. That's just what the New Testament teaches. So do you have fellowship with God through his son? Do you have fellowship with the church? Let me pray.